2: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And last episode, we talked about the future of gay marriage. And we realized what a perfect segue into wedding season. Hooray. Hooray. It is August and wedding season is officially In full swing. So, this episode, we're talking about engagement rings, Mm -hmm. and the next episode, just to round out a wedding week, to kick off wedding season, because, of course, with Stuff Mom Never Told You, there's endless fodder for us to talk about with wedding season, wedding-related topics. So, we're going to kick it off with engagement rings next episode. Spoiler we're going to talk about bachelorette parties. Woot. Woot. Talk- straws. <laughs> yes, but let's start on a classy note. Diamonds. With engagement rings and diamonds, 75% of American brides are wearing a diamond Engagement ring and Caroline, can you guess how much the average engagement ring costs? Is it two months' salary? It's about two months' salary, according to a 2009 survey from The The average engagement ring costs five thousand eight hundred and forty-seven clams.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's a lot of money to wear on your finger. It's not cheap. Uh So let's jump right in to a
1: timeline of engagement rings. When we started wearing these pricey rings, what they symbolize and what the deal is with those diamonds. We touched on the diamond aspect a long time ago, years ago in a podcast solely devoted to diamonds. But we figured it's high time to... Revisit this.
0: Yeah, there is a long history of engagement type or betrothal type jewelry uh, that men present to their beloveds. Uh, Everything, you know, from ancient Egypt to Rome to Asia. Uh, just a tradition of grooms giving brides some kind of essentially like betrothal tag. Yeah, although my, my favorite
1: of these are called puzzle rings mm-hmm. that appeared in the first century B.C. in Asia. But one of the first recorded uses of a diamond engagement ring comes in 1477 with Archduke Maximilian of Austria who proposed to Mary of Burgundy.
0: Yeah, and the ring supposedly had uh, thin, flat pieces of diamond in the shape of an M for her initial. How sweet. That does sound kind of sweet. We- I hope you really did love her. Maximilian? Yeah. Maximilian and
1: Mary. I have a feeling that this was probably more of a diplomatic union. Mm. But... I like the idea
0: of those little diamonds spelling out her initial. That's that was, true. That was at least thoughtful. It was thoughtful. Um, but moving forward a little bit, there, there is some sketchy history of engagement rings and things that we are not quite sure how accurate they are. But one of them that we're not quite sure of, but that is interesting, if it is true, um, in the 18th century, Puritans in America supposedly gave their betrothed Thimbles instead of rings, which they thought of as frivolous. But eventually many women were like, I want a ring still. And so those thimbles got sawed off to be actual ring-shaped items. And the
1: Victorians were also fans of romantic jewelry. We have things like poesy rings. And also in the 1800s, jewelry made from human hair. I, I posted a picture of that on our Tumblr a, a while ago. Um, and they also used gemstones to spell out terms of endearment. So a very strong connection between romance and jewelry. And in the 1840s, the engagement ring tradition as we think of it in a more modern sense, really takes off in the United States. But at that time, they were given to both women and men. It's not until the 1900s when the women-only custom really takes
2: hold.
0: Yeah, well, so uh, the push to give diamonds really got going in uh, towards the mid to late 19th century uh, in 1867, the diamond supply got a huge boost when diamonds were discovered in the Cape Colony in Africa, which is now part of South Africa. And that, that gets us rolling on the De Beers Mining Company, and a huge flood of diamonds into the market.
1: Yeah, previously, diamonds had only been found in Indian riverbeds in Brazilian jungles. So they really were these precious gemstones that were often reserved for wealthier people and royalty. Uh, But when Cecil Rhodes founded that De Beers Mining Company in 1880, it shifted the entire industry. And six years later, in 1886, Tiffany and Company introduces the Tiffany setting, which was designed to maximize a diamond's brilliance by raising it up from the band, as opposed to like with Archduke Maximilian's ring setting, which had the thin flat pieces of diamonds set into the band. Tiffany really put the diamond in the spotlight.
0: Yeah, and then moving forward into the 1890s, we have the appearance of affordable wedding and engagement rings in mail-order catalogs. So that's how popular and commonplace they were becoming, that you could pick up a Sears and Roebuck catalog and buy your sweetie an engagement ring. And then in 1918, we have Cartier creating the Trinity ring for Jean Cocteau, who gives one to his lover, poet Raymond Radiguet. And it's still a traditional uh, wedding ring in France. And that's the Trinity ring is when you have uh, the three bands that interlock. I think it's white gold, yellow gold and rose gold, if I'm not mistaken. Somebody correct me. So even though, at this point, engagement rings are still
1: being given, it's still not the idea of giving someone that huge rock, the whole idea of a man needing to spend two months' salary on a ring to really prove his worth and really give that woman a a ring that she deserves, that she's going to wear on her hand for the rest of her life or for the rest of their nuptials, however long that might last. Um, And in the background... We have some legal changes that are about to start going on, which is going to play a big part in why we see diamond engagement rings as the standard today. Now, there used to be a law called the breach of promise to marry that allowed women to sue for breaking off an engagement because essentially Marriage was, you know, very much an economic arrangement. Women would literally lend their hands in marriage. Uh, so back in the day, there was a law called the breach of promise to marry that allowed women to sue men for breaking off an engagement. Because if that was the case, there is a decent chance that she and the groom to be would have already done it. And if he walked out before they walked down the aisle, she would, in society's eyes, be Damaged goods, how charming. And so legally, under this breach of promise to marry law, she could sue. Now, the guy could also sue as well, but usually it was more a protection for these potentially sexually spoiled women. I hate to put it in those terms, but that was really how it went, because economically... A woman who had had sex before marriage had lost her, quote unquote, market value. But in the 1930s, states began striking down the law. And by 1945, 16 states, which at the time accounted for nearly half of the population in the United States, had made it. Obsolete. But what is happening at the same time, Caroline, to maybe swoop
0: in symbolically and take the place of these breach to marry laws? Oh, that would be diamond engagement rings. Mm. Uh, we're becoming more than just decorative jewelry or something that maybe just the upper class or the royalty were giving to their, uh, beloveds. Uh, that initial surge in diamond imports from companies like De Beers, which we're about to get into, started in 1935. So all of a sudden, you know, states are striking down this breach uh, of promise to marry law. But women are still getting, as as all of these diamonds are coming into the market in the U.S., they're still getting some type of, literally, financial insurance against being left. Yeah, this offers the
1: brides-to-be a form of collateral, this upfront financial insurance in the form of a more expensive diamond ring. And this also is when we see that cement shifted from men and women getting some form of engagement rings to it just being a thing given to the women. Um, and as this is happening, too, this is a boon for the De Beers cartel, because, as you mentioned, we have the discovery of all of those diamonds in South Africa around 1870, which endangered the investments made by British financiers who had organized the mines there, because the market was flooded with all of these new diamonds, and so these financiers were worried that the diamonds would become only semi-precious stones, Jones, enter De Beers Consolidated Minds Limited. How they were able to do this, I don't even know.
0: Well, it is funny to think about. I, I thought the same thing. Like, that is so shady. But, I mean, I feel like as we've discovered on the podcast so many times... Uh, Stuff was just shady back then. Yeah. (laughs) Could, Could you offer our listeners a rundown of the extent of this De Beers diamond monopoly? Yeah. So basically, when all these investors were so concerned about protecting their interests and their investments in these mines, they decided to merge into a powerful single entity in 1888, which was the De Beers Consolidated Mines Limited. But in London, they operated under the name Diamond Trading Company. That's nice and generic. In Israel, they were known as the syndicate. Across Europe, they were called the central selling organization, which was an arm, a supposed arm of the diamond trading company. And in Africa, outside of South Africa, they were disguised under various subsidiaries. So, like, I mean... People, only people who are doing shady things need to, uh, cover it up, right? Yeah, because they were
1: creating this massive diamond monopoly, which allowed them to stabilize the price of diamonds, because other commodities' values are fluctuating in response to economic conditions, because hello, what's about to happen? The Great Depression sending commodities prices down, but, The diamonds prices were actually increasing at that time due to the power of that De Beers entity. But in the late 1930s, demand for diamonds was still down in Europe. And so De Beers said, you know what? We have a giant potential market in the United States. But they also had, with so many diamonds, problems with quality and Problems with some lagging sales. So, bring in the marketers.
0: Yeah, well, around this time, about three-fourths of all the De Beers cartels' diamonds were sold for engagement rings in the U.S. But it is funny to note that, like, if you go back and look at rings from this time, you know, a lot of jewelers were quoted in stories about this stuff. They are really poor quality because... People were not as concerned with quality, clarity, cut, all of that stuff we know is the four C's now. They just wanted a big old rock. And so quality did suffer. But, yeah, this is really a job for marketing now. And so De Beers brought in agency NW Air, which stressed the need to strengthen the association of diamonds with romance in the public's mind, convince young men that diamonds are a gift of love, and convince women that they're an integral part of courtship. And and what are our attitudes about engagement rings today in 2013? Same thing, that they're a gift of love, that you have to get it for your fiancé, and the woman has the opinion, you know, like, oh, well, if I don't get a ring, like, I mean, that's just part of engagement. I have to get a diamond ring. Right. And not just any ring. It needs to be an impressive
1: diamond ring so that she can do the show off with, mm-hmm. w- with a, you know, flashing her, her rock for friends and family. And who knows, just strangers and grocery <laughs> lines. And it's incredible to think of how they were able to do things like tap into this early celebrity culture. Right. Because by this point, movie stars were really huge huge, and so they would do things like have diamond photo ops essentially for movie stars to show off their rings, uh, they would take out print and radio ads, but they still needed a slogan. And in 1947, copywriter Francis Garrity coined A diamond is forever, which Advertising Age in 1999 named the slogan of the century. And I like to think of Frances Garrity for Mad Men fans out there. I like to think of her
2: as a Peggy Olson Mm -hmm. before her day. This episode is brought to you by Snagajob.
3: Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs
2: Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly.
3: Visit Snagajob.com or text SNAG to two four two four two four to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: Can I rant for a sec? Please.
3: Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a National Association member FDIC.
0: Well, it's funny because she said that nobody was really excited about the slogan when she came up with it, but that it eventually became De Beers. Like that's their motto. That's their official slogan. It's on all of their advertisements still. Well, so by the end of the 1950s, uh, the agency NW Air reported to De Beers that hey. Our, all our hard work has paid off. 20 years of advertisements and publicity, putting these diamonds on movie stars, putting out all of these ads with sappy copy. It really had a profound effect, and an entire generation had come of age thinking diamond engagement rings were required. And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast today, 75%
1: of American brides are wearing a diamond engagement ring. And the idea of framing it as forever Mm -hmm. was really important because that also had an impact on controlling the resale market of diamonds because you're not going to eventually pawn that diamond off. No, you keep it and you pass it down in your family because as a guy, you're going to go out and spend that two month salary on a rock impressive enough to keep in the family.
0: Right. Which is such a I mean, it is a big con when you think about it, because when people try to resell their diamonds, you can never get anywhere close to the money that you spent on it. Yeah. It's almost like buying a car. Yes. As soon as you drive it off the lot, its value goes down. Mm-hmm.
1: So <laughs> engagement rings, used car lots. <laughs> I hate to make that association, but it is kind of there. And just showing how savvy advertising and De Beers were in tandem in terms of making diamond engagement rings a thing. They even were able to go into Japan. And do a similar thing. They did this with agency J. Walter Thompson in the 60s. Yeah, in
0: 1967, the year the ad campaign began, just under 5% of engaged Japanese women received diamond engagement rings. It, it just wasn't a thing. Um, But in 1981, about 60 percent of Japanese brides wore diamonds because they launched this brilliant ad campaign. I mean, they had people in Western clothes with Western cars, like the fanciest, most up to date, fashionable stuff in these ads. And, you know, the couples were just having a gay old time. Um and it's like, well, don't you want to buy her a diamond? Don't you love her? Yeah, and don't you
1: want to kind of align with these Western values? Right. Come on, get get hip, get with it, get a diamond. Um, but once the Soviet Union at the time, moving into Cold War era, finds diamonds as well, they start flooding the market with a lot of smaller diamonds. So of course the beers in monopoly form swoops in and is like, like oh Soviet Union, we're gonna buy all. Your diamonds because we don't want you to dilute the market. But then they have all of these tiny diamonds. So, what does the beers do? Because they already have a corner on the engagement ring with all the, the, the big rock. Mm-hmm. So, what do they do? Oh,
0: guys, you know what? Uh, you need to buy her. An eternity band. Right. Once you've been married for a couple of years, you need to buy her some more diamonds. How about an eternity band for your wife for your 25th anniversary? In other words, help us get rid of all these Soviet diamonds, please. Yeah, we have a, we have too many teeny tiny diamonds that we don't know what to do with. So just as, as, uh, perspective on how, uh, flush with cash De Beers was getting around this time, by 1979, NW Air had helped De Beers expand its sale of diamonds in the US to more than 2.1 billion at the wholesale level compared with just 23 million. Back in 1939. And I didn't know, Caroline, that De Beers
1: and this whole advertising initiative is the reason why we think of those four C's of shopping for diamonds, of the cut, clarity, color and carrot, because all of that was engineered mm-hmm. to steer us toward bigger, more expensive rocks.
0: Right. Is, is your diamond flawless? Oh. Well, it should be. He obviously doesn't love you if it's not.
1: Well, one thing that a lot of uh, listeners might find surprising is that the notion of the two-month salary is relatively new. It's not until the 1980s that the ad agency starts introducing this campaign that set that two-month salary benchmark with the charming slogan, isn't two-month salary a small price to pay for something that lasts forever?
0: That was my vomit noise response to that. Um, yeah, forever, forever making people feel like they should go into debt yeah. for an engagement
1: ring. So... The answer to why do women wear diamond engagement rings? It's advertising. Yep. It's all advertising. Maybe a, a little bit of contribution to Archduke Maximilian in 1477, but he really didn't start a trend. It was De Beers
0: mm-hmm. and NW Ayers. It was, De Beers created this international need for diamond rings solely that they could stay in business. Yeah. Although in more recent years, business has not been as great
1: for De Beers. They've actually been bought out for the most part by Anglo-American PLC, which has taken a majority ownership in them. And De Beers has now focused their energy away from the mining so much into retail stores, which in I think it was 2005, they only had one storefront. and Now they've. Uh, diversified that I think they have more than twenty stores which have been very successful because even even with all the controversy in terms of blood diamonds and knowing more about these economics these shady economics of the diamond trade and how they have been devastating for a number of local mining economies it's put a dent in the diamond industry, but it's still so strong. We still buy more diamonds than ever before. And the diamond engagement ring is still the standard.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it, that a diamond, there's no reason for a diamond to be as expensive as it is. No. Except for just the the people who control them. Yeah. Yeah. But there
1: is one major area that advertising for diamonds has failed. And that is when it comes to diamond engagement rings for men.
0: Yeah, that, that is just not caught on. I mean, in the 1920s, manufacturers and retail jewelers really tried to launch this concept, but it just didn't catch on. It was, it was too much associated with women and romance, I think.
1: Yeah, and it was once those breach of promise to marry laws, were dissolved. It just became a thing for women and for women in relationships. As a side note, in 1965, taking a tip from second wave feminism, uh, N.W. Ayers did launch a Women of the World Raise Your Right Hand campaign featuring quote-unquote bachelor girls, divorces, widows or career women buying their own diamonds, but that didn't take off. Although I want to say it was a couple of years ago, I read a piece in the New York Times about
0: women buying themselves their yeah. form of engagement ring. Well, I, I mean, I remember those ads from not too long ago. They I mean, they did relaunch the campaign to sell those right hand rings, you know, ones that, you know, your your engagement ring might be very simple and fancy, you know, but your 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 right hand ring was going to be something kooky looking. Again, it's just advertising. Yeah, it's it's creating a demand.
1: Yeah, but but back to engagement rings for men. Because speaking of trend stories, in around two thousand ten. Uh, some news outlets were trying to say that this was becoming a thing. Because if you go to Scandinavia, and Scandinavian listeners, could you please confirm this for us? Momstuffatdiscovery.com. <laughs> it's where you can email us. Uh, supposedly male engagement rings are, are totally the norm over there. But over here,
0: we have to do things like call them man-engagement rings. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Come on, stop calling a ma- stop stop making words up. Um but a handful of jewelers really did jump on this trend and the New York Times reported on it in 2010. They talked to British jeweler H Samuel who had launched a line of rings that allowed women to propose to their men because obviously women before this time were not allowed to. Yeah. So thank thank you to H Samuel and then the, jeweler Navori in Washington state offers rings for men ranging from about $400 to nearly 3000. And history professor Stephanie Kuntz out at uh, Evergreen State College explained it thusly. She said, "It's a logical extension of our increasing rejection of the double standard of sexuality." She's saying things like male infidelity is becoming less and less acceptable. You know, women are more on an equal footing with men. So why shouldn't they be able to uh, propose to their male partners? And
1: that absolutely happens. And there was a Brides.com survey recently, which found that 45 percent of women surveyed said that they would buy their fiancés an engagement ring. But I don't think that it, that is ever going to catch on. Not because it's a bad thing to do or a wrong thing to do. I feel like it is so entrenched um, in our society that it's... I, I just don't think that male engagement rings are ever going to catch on. There are some couples that do it. And I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that it's wrong, but I. <sighs> these trend stories try to make it a thing. But as long as you call something a man-engagement ring, yeah, No. Right. No, I I wouldn't want
0: a lady engagement ring. You know, it just it doesn't. It's it's, it's an an ova engagement ring. <laughs> yes. Well, um, I mean Barbara Rissman, who uh, she also talked to the New York Times. She's the head of the University of Illinois Sociology Department. She framed it as you know relationships becoming more about partnership. So both she and her fiance wear engagement rings, but she was also married before. You know, she's older, and she, uh, as part of the feminist movement back in the 70s, she was like, I'm not wearing an engagement ring. I don't want to be somebody's property. You know, like, I'm already marrying you. What more do you want? But this time around, not only is she wearing an engagement ring, but her fiancé is as well. And her reasoning for that, she says, the feminist movement and I... Have matured. Yeah, I don't see progress
1: as, oh, well, now women can just propose. Yeah, sure, we can propose. Mm It's totally fine. But I would see progress as moving this idea of engagement away from just popping a question Mm -hmm. to maybe just being a more of a a conversation, Mm -hmm. you know? Not to say the the romanticized idea of someone getting down on one knee and is my boyfriend listening right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, you know what I mean. I, I, I think that I don't. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. But I, I think that progress is more just moving to the
0: idea of a partnership. I don't see anything wrong with with both people wearing a ring too. But that's. I mean, that's exactly what Jessica Valenti's reasoning was in her. She wrote a column about. Her marriage and proposal experience, the fact that she and her partner uh, entered into it equally, that they decided to create their own traditions and they caught so much flack from family and friends for it. Yeah, as one of the
1: founders of feministing.com and one of the leading voices and most public faces of feminism today, when she publicly announced that she was getting married, Valenti did receive a lot of criticism from some feminists, too, who said, you're buying into this traditionally patriarchal structure. Why do you need to do that? And she suggested that you can enter into it equally and make your own traditions. But one thing that she didn't explicitly talk about was this engagement ring thing. I don't think there was an engagement ring involved. But um, in The New York Times wedding announcement... She did say or quoted her as saying that the only purpose of an engagement ring is to show that you belong to someone and that your man makes bank. And as far as the wedding bands that they exchanged, they were just simple bands. I don't think there were any gems in them that they had bought while on a trip to Rome, which, that sounds lovely. Mm,
0: yeah, I want to go on a trip to Rome and buy rings. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting that,
1: uh, this was a little dated, this was from 2007, but a, a similarly leading second wave feminist, Megan O'Rourke, was writing about this engagement ring issue in Slate, and she talks about the fact that for Diamonds, with the legacy of De Beers and the advertising that it's really just a sales gimmick, and also she calls it a big, shiny, no trespassing sign. But at the end of the post, she notes that, well, yeah, she wears an engagement ring.
0: Well, I mean, I've I thought about this, too, kind of, kind of only vaguely, because I'm in no danger of getting engaged anytime soon. But danger? <laughs> but uh, would I like an engagement ring? Sure. But... Me personally, like I don't I don't want you going out and buying me a bajillion dollar ring. Please don't I, go to Jared. I well, I, I know people who have instead of being able to save money to buy a house or pay off their loans or anything like that, they go out and they buy this huge rock and it just puts them even farther back for when they actually do get married. It's like I would rather you repurpose my grandmother's ring or my mother's ring or something like that. And I, I partially say that because my grandmother gave my mother a ring that's like, giant, I'm making a giant circle sign with my hands, but you know, well, whatever. Or go the Puritan route. Give me a thimble. Get a nice thimble. I can't even sew. So the symbolism wouldn't even be a thing for me. No, but they cut the and, cut know, the top off. Probably I probably
1: thought leave. you liked that. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's funny. Or maybe one of those uh,
0: Victorian era, uh, maybe a hair. He could use his <laughs> hair to weave a ring. Could probably just go to my shower drain. <laughs> and weave a ring out of that. Anyway, no herring. Okay, I'm just, I'm just saying. Uh, well, speaking of
1: gender, there have been some studies on gender roles and engagement rings. There was one called "With this ring, I v wed." Relating Gender Roles and Love Styles to Attitudes Toward Engagement Rings and Weddings by Shirley M. Ogletree that came out in Gender Issues in 2010. And she basically just surveyed a bunch of college students about this. And the the main takeaway from the study was that women, in fact, do not care about getting big old bling rings and having massive weddings more so than men. Men and women were pretty much equally invested in the notion of an engagement ring and also the relative fanciness of said rings.
0: Um, but she pointed out there were two groups, the, the group with the gender stereotypical attitudes and the gender transcendence group, which I just think sounds so lovely. Uh, it sounds like there should be clouds. Um, their, their attitude, the gender transcendence attitude was significantly uh, correlated with the idea that uh, relationships should be more egalitarian. And there there was a le- less of a desire there for the expensive engagement rings or weddings, whereas um, college students that she surveyed who had those more gender stereotypical attitudes regarding male and female roles did, both male and female, tend to uh, want a more traditional expensive wedding and engagement.
1: Now there was also another study examining the amount of money spent on engagement rings by men. This is all so very heteronormative for the moment. Um, and they compared it to the age and income of the women. And they found that younger women received more expensive rings. Also women with higher income which conformed to predictions derived from sexual selection theory because the idea is that younger women will get bigger rings because they cost more because their worth, in quotes, is higher because since they're younger, they are more fertile, etc. But uh, all of this said, the greatest predictor of the price of an engagement ring wasn't so much relative to the female, but more how much the guy made. The more money he made the bigger the ring that right. he bought, which, again, this still, though, ties into that idea of, well, is an engagement ring buying a huge engagement ring so much a symbol of one's love or a symbol of a guy's income? Does it is it again just a bragging right? Not only that, hey, th- this is this is his gal, especially if he's not wearing a ring. Hey, this is uh my betrothed. Don't don't you can look, but don't touch. Uh, and look at how much I spent on the ring. So he's like twice raised up on that. So
0: he could be putting his bank account on display or he could just be getting what he thinks he needs to get for the fiance.
1: Yeah. And we're talking in very symbolic terms. Right you know i don't i don't think that, uh, <laughs> that
2: men are, are
1: even no, no. No. trying to parade women around like cattle by yeah, no. via going to tiffany but this is why that that symbolism in the history of it is why engagement rings are often
0: met with disapproval right. by by feminists. Well, I I do look forward. You you mentioned uh, you know this is all very heteronormative for the moment. I, I did try to look up uh, stuff on engagement rings among gay couples, but really there's nothing out there except maybe uh, tongue in cheek etiquette guides mm-hmm. for who should propose to whom. Should we both wear rings? Should only one of us wear rings? That is something that I would like to hear from listeners. You know, from from gay and lesbian couples out there, like who have gotten engaged, gotten married. What did you decide to do? Did you both wear rings? Did only one person wear rings? Because um, some of the etiquette out there is like, hey, do whatever you want. Um, Gawker's only warning for men was a diamond encrusted band on top of a wedding ring is going to make you look like Liberace. So I actually want to hear from listeners about what what they have done. Yeah, Michelle
1: Court, who is the editor of Here Comes the Bride, Reflections on Lesbian Love and Marriage, uh, said that lesbians have long worn matching rings, so they might do that. But then again, all of it kind of ends with make up your own traditions, which I think is great that same-sex couples have more of a blank slate to create their own traditions without, as in the case of someone like Jessica Valeni, getting a lot of flack from family and friends saying, you're not, where's the, but you're, you know. (laughs) So I want to hear, though, from couples now about this engagement ring issue because there is a not so bright history as to why we wear diamond engagement rings guys i want to know about this issue of men wearing engagement rings too would you wear one do you think that it's a bit imbalanced that it's women who receive the engagement ring the idea that we should spend two months salary on a ring which again that is only a product of advertising let us know all of your thoughts Momsvadiscovery.com is where you can send them. and we didn't even get into, you know, the Facebook photos of girls showing off their rings and would you do that? I'd probably do it. I'm very conflicted. <laughs> help, help me sort out my my feelings about engagement rings by writing to me and Caroline at mommsevadiscovery.com. You can also find us on Facebook and tweet us at Mom Stuff Podcast.
2: This episode is brought to you by Snagajob
3: Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect.
2: Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. And now back to our letters.
0: All right, Kristen, I have one here from Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah writes, as a lover of genre fiction, I found e-readers and iBooks a boon for a reason that relates to one of your recent podcasts. I find the covers of genre fiction embarrassing. Specifically, I enjoy sci-fi, fantasy, and urban fantasy. Sci-fi and fantasy often have aggressively masculine covers. Biceps and barely covered boobs abound. And urban fantasy, often written by women, have romance covers. Think man with floppy hair, artistic stubble. What is artistic stubble? And boyish features looking pensive. Now I can enjoy my vampires, wizards, and ray guns without having to explain to every passerby, no, the writing's actually really good. So thank you. Well, I've got an email here from Dee,
1: also about our episode on judging books by their covers. She writes, um, I've attended an annual event held by D.C. area book clubs, which feature African-American authors. Book covers have come up often as a topic of conversation. The authors have mentioned the fact that they have very little say on the design of their covers. The authors that write romance have mentioned that their publishers do not want to feature people on the cover so that the book is not pigeonholed into the African-American author section of the bookstore, or even worse, urban romance. Romance. Authors that have attained a level of success that would normally allow their photo to be placed in the back of the book jacket are told that this will decrease book sales. And also, authors with stereotypically African-American names are encouraged to adopt a pseudonym or to use an initial instead of their given name. Several of the more commercially successful authors have re-released their early work with their given names instead of pseudonyms. And there are also mixed feelings within this community as to whether an African-American author section should exist at your local Barnes & Noble. Does this section do more harm than good just some food for your literary thoughts yeah some food indeed um that was something that we did not bring up which is uh race and ethnicity and that was something when we were researching that issue of gender and authors and book covers and book marketing uh, that was a conversation that came up saying hey yeah we've got this whole thing about women but you know what's even worse issues for writers of color So um, thanks so much, Dee, for bringing that up because that's definitely an area that needs to be addressed. And if you have an area that needs to be addressed with us, you can write us at momstuffdiscovery.com. You can write us over on Facebook as well. Follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And on Tumblr, it's stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And as always, you can watch us four times a week over on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash stuffmomnevertoldyou. And don't forget to subscribe
3: Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your
2: trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
3: This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive